Holy Lugalbanda came out from the mountain cave. Then Utu, the righteous one who takes counsel with Enlil, caused life-saving plants to be born. The rolling rivers, mothers of the hills, brought life-saving water. Lugalbanda bit on the life-saving plants. He sipped from the life-saving water. After biting on the life-saving plants, after sipping from the life-saving water, here he on his own set a trap in the ground. And from that spot, he sped away like a horse of the mountain, like a lone wild ass of shotgun. He darted over the mountains, like a large powerful donkey he raced, a slim donkey, eager to run, he bounded along. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and we're here with my guest. Uh, Kelton, also known as the Lone Wild Ass. And we are listening to the end of Lugalbanda in the Mountain Cave. Again, a Sumerian text written down in the 21st century BCE. Previously, Lugalbanda was one of King Enmerkar's mightiest soldiers, and on his way to fight against the rival kingdom of Arata in the mountains. But on his way, he got sick, and his fellow soldiers laid out a funeral feast for him. And because he didn't want to die, he prayed to various gods to help him get better. And they and, did. Yeah, and they listened to his prayers. Prayer works. The text mentions a horse of the mountains. The Sumerian word for horse is ass of the mountains. Oh, yeah, it's like the uh, the message that they sent earlier. Yeah, right. yeah, no, yeah, that same block of text is used to describe both Enmerkar's messenger and Lugalbanda, now that he's healthy. Huh, Yeah. interesting. Like a slim donkey, as it were. Good to know they have a copy and paste, like, this dude's good to go description. I mean, yeah. Which, again, is tied into the Iliad tradition, just like stock phrases. To... Yeah, yeah. How do we show this guy is healthy and virile? Yeah. He's like a donkey. He's like a donkey. Yeah. He's like a... <laughs> Donkeys must have been more flattering in the I mean, past. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, they, they also show up as just like dumb, smelly, obstinate animals. So. <laughs> I mean, I think donkeys have always been donkeys. <laughs> sure, they haul our stuff, but they're kind of stupid about yeah, it. Yeah, Exactly. The text mentions life-saving plants. This parallels Gilgamesh and the plant that he almost eats at the end, which almost grants him immortal life. So close. So close. That night, in the evening, he set off, hurrying through the mountains, a wasteland in the moonlight. He was alone and, even to his sharp eyes, there was not a single person to be seen. With the provisions stocked in leather pails, provisions put in leather bags, his brothers and his friends have been able to bake bread on the ground with some cold water. Holy Lugalbanda had carried the things from the mountain cave. He set them beside the embers. He filled a bucket with water. In front of him, he split what he had placed. He took hold of the stones. Repeatedly, he struck them together. He laid the glowing coals on the open ground. The fine flint stone caused the spark. Its fire shone out for him over the wasteland like the sun, not knowing how to bake cakes, not knowing an oven. With just seven coals, he baked Gijiesta dough. While the bread was baking by itself, he pulled up the shulhi reeds of the mountains, roots and all, and stripped their branches. He packed up all the cakes as a day's ration, not knowing how to bake cakes, not knowing an oven. With just seven coals, he had baked Gijiesta dough. He had garnished it with sweet date syrup. This is how one bakes bread outdoors. And that number seven again. Yep. A brown wild bull. A fine-looking wild bull. A wild bull tossing its horns. A wild bull in hunger. Resting, seeking with its voice the brown wild bulls of the hills. 
the pure place. It was drinking the water of the rolling rivers. It was belching from its ilinush, the pure plant of the mountain. While the brown wild bulls, the wild bulls of the mountains, were browsing about among the plants, Lugalbanda captured this one in his ambush. He uprooted a juniper tree of the mountain and stripped its branches. With a knife, holy Lugalbanda trimmed its roots, which were like the long rushes of the field. He tethered the brown wild bull, the wild bull of the mountains, to it with a halter. This formula repeats a second time with wild goats, quote, a brown goat and a buck goat, flea-bitten goats, lousy goats, fatty goats. He just got this real shitty goat. Yeah. Piece of shit, diseased, frothing at the mouth. I mean, just wow. He was alone, and even to his sharp eyes, there was not a single person to be seen. Sleep overcame the king. Sleep, the country of oppression. It is like a towering flood, like a hand demolishing a brick wall, a hand rising high, a foot raised high, covering like syrup that which is in front of it, overflowing like syrup onto that which is in front of it. It knows no overseer, knows no captain, yet it is overpowering for the hero. I really like that metaphor. Uh, for sleep? For sleep, yeah, just like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, Luca Bondo went to sleep. Like, oh, I know. The country of oppression. <laughs> you see, he's sleepy, but he didn't want to. You know, and in a lot of texts, sleep and death are kind of paired thematically. Both here and in the Sumerian myth, where Gilgamesh goes to fight Huwawa, sleep is seen as a personal weakness of the mortal hero and symbolic of death. And then to drive the point home, he's about to drink his funeral feast. When it talks about Ninkasi's cask, it means, of course, the beer in the barrel. And by means of Ninkasi's wooden cask, Sleep finally overcame Lugalbanda. He laid down Lenush, pure herb of the mountains, as a couch. He spread out a Zalumhi garment. He unfolded there a white linen sheet. There be no room for bathing. He made do with that place. The king lay down not to sleep. He lay down to dream, not turning back at the door of the dream, not turning back at the door pivot. So we get more poetry about sleeping, this time about dreams. This has parallels in both the Iliad and Aeneid, when it talks about false dreams. To the liar, it takes in lies. To the truthful, it speaks truth. It can make one man happy. It can make another man sing. But it is the closed tablet basket of the gods. It is the beautiful bedchamber of Ninlil. It is the counselor of Inanna, the multiplier of mankind the voice of one not alive. Zangara, the god of dreams, himself like a bull, bellowed at Lugulbanda, like the calf of a cow he loathed. So Zangara asks for a sacrifice. Specifically, he asks for the bull and the goats that Lugulbanda captured. He also mentions a tin axe and an iron dagger. Both tin and iron would have been unusual. Tin and copper were alloyed to make bronze. Tin is not usually used alone. And iron would have been rare, and most iron in circulation during the Bronze Age would have been meteoric iron. That's cool. Yep. That's so cool. That's one of the only places where you could find pure iron in nature. It fell from space. That's so awesome. Right? How is this? Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Space knife. Space knife. Lugalbanda awoke. It was a dream. He shivered. It was sleep. He rubbed his eyes. He was overawed. He took his axe, whose metal was ten. He wielded his dagger, which was of iron, 
Like an athlete, he brought away the brown wild bull, the wild bull of the mountains. Like a wrestler, he made it submit, its strength left it. He offered it before the rising sun. He heaped up, like barley corns, the heads of the brown goat and the buck goat, both of the goats. He poured out their blood in the pit so that their smell wafted out in the desert. The alert snakes of the mountain sniffed it. As the sun was rising, Lugalbanda invoked the name of Enlil, made An, Enlil, Enki, and Ninhursanga sit down to a banquet at the pit, at the place in the mountains which he had prepared. The banquet was set, the libations were poured, dark beer, alcoholic drink, light emmer beer, wine for drinking which is pleasant to the taste. Over the plain he poured cool water as libation. He put the knife to the flesh of the brown goats. He roasted the dark livers there. He let their smoke rise there like incense put on the fire. As if Dumuzi had brought in the good saviors of the cattle pen, so An and Lil, Inki and Ninhursanga consumed the best part of the food prepared by Lungulbanda. He decorated the two altars with lapis lazuli of Anana. He set out all the cakes properly. Where did he get this lapis lazuli? That's a good question. I mean, I know I, the the stanza about all the the libations were is from his funeral feast. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. But I don't remember lapis lazuli in the funeral descriptions. Maybe it was there. Had it on him. Yeah, just, just yeah. <laughs> bogged down by like fifty slabs. And... So from here on, the text of Lugalbanda in the Mountain Cave is unclear too damaged to read in its entirety. So we do have an interesting section in an unclear context. It might be a description of Unug's soldiers. They who are favored by Anana's heart, who stand in the battle, they are the 14 torches of battle. They are the 14 torches of battle. At midnight and the dead of night, they pursue like wildfire. In a band, they flash together like lightning in the urgent storm of battle, which roars loudly like a great blood rising up. They who are favored in Anana's heart, who stand in the battle, they are seven torches of battle. They stand joyfully as she wears the crown under a clear sky. With their foreheads and eyes, they are a clear evening. They are wild boars resting in a reed thicket. They stand in the thick of battle. By Nentur of heaven, they are numerous. The holy shining battle mace reaches to the edge of heaven and earth. So that's the end of this text. Next up, we have the sequel where Lugalbanda meets the Anzu bird. So this will be episode one of two on the Jemdet Nasser period. So the time period between 3100 and 2900 BC. So we're after the end of the Uruk period and the collapse of the colonial network, but before the early dynastic period of the early to mid 2000s. Today, we'll be talking about cities Unug has only been strengthened by the migration out of the outposts. Ur will be important throughout the 2000s BC. We'll look at the eponymous Jemdet Nasser in the north, and we'll take a quick look at some other cities that will be important later. Then we'll take a look at the possibility of a city league, in other words, a political unit, including several different city-states within it. If such a polity existed, then the history of political unification started 700 years before Sargon the Great, who we'll get to eventually. Then we'll continue with the story of Lugalbanda. So recently we've talked about the end of the Uruk period, so throughout the mid to late 3000s, city-states in the Alluvium had constructed a series of outposts across Mesopotamia and Iran. 
Some were near deposits of natural resources, like copper mines and forests. Some were on intersections of major trade routes, for example, where overland routes cross rivers. All of this was set up so that alluvial cities would have access to goods from across southwestern Asia. But the continued success of the system was reliant on consistent control of critical communication lines. In other words, in order for this colonial network to keep working, every part had to be in continuous communication with every other part, and there had to be no kind of internal conflicts or shortages or disruptions or anything like that, because any disruption would have knock-on effects. Natural resources are finite and political relationships are fickle. We talked about deforestation and erosion in a previous episode. So during and after the collapse of this network, there was a huge amount of migration. So during the 3100s BC, like I said, most major outposts in Syria, Anatolia, and Iran were abandoned. The material culture of Susa and Susiana became more similar to the rest of Iran than to Mesopotamia. The same situation happened in the north. A new northern culture called the Ninevite Five culture replaced what had been the northern Uruk culture. We see a similar situation in the Alluvium. We see a major reorganization of monuments in Unub. The Ayana temple complex is totally rebuilt. We see lots of population turnover, which may be connected with a shifting coastline. In other words, as your river is constantly depositing new soil at the end of the river, where it flows into the Persian Gulf, it's going to create new shoreline extending out into what used to be the ocean. So around this time, we see the growth of new medium-sized centers. So even though the overall number of urban-sized centers is decreasing, the average size of these remaining urban centers is increasing by a lot. So now instead of one massive city, like Unug, and a few big ones, like Uma, surrounded by lots and lots of small villages, now we have several large and mid-sized cities, and lots of people are leaving small villages for these cities. And this will set up the 2000s, when we'll see about a dozen large cities competing for supremacy in Sumer. In a previous episode, we talked about import substitution, which is when you replace manual labor done in the periphery with manual labor done under your control in the core. This gives alluvial elites more centralized control over production. If they had made the choice to do this on their own terms, this would be a good move to secure their power in the long term. But given that this would have coincided with the collapse of the colonial network, they might not have had a choice. In other words, they might have lost control over the periphery first and then had to figure out some other way to get people to do work for them. So let's look at some cities, starting with Jemdet Nasser, after which the period is named. Jemdet Nasser is a fairly small site in the northern alluvium near Baghdad. It is 30 kilometers northeast of Kish, which we'll look at briefly today and much more later. It was occupied from the Ubayid period to the early 2000s, the early, early dynastic period. But its heyday was about 200 years, from 3100 to 2900 BC, hence the Jemdet Nasser period. Technically, Jemdet Nasser refers to a material culture found in the north during this period, at places like Jemdet Nasser, Tel Ukair, Uma, and the Diyala region, so you know, the north and central alluvium. The name Jemdet Nasser is the modern Arabic name of the site. Its ancient name is unknown because it was abandoned before the spread of phonetic writing. Robert England has found that the cuneiform sign combo Ni-Ru shows up a lot in texts from Jemdet Nasser, so he suggests that that is the ancient name of Jemdet Nasser. Other academics say that Ni-Ru is either the name of an institution or an administrative term, not a place name. There is another place represented by the cuneiform sign Ub. This is clearly a geographical name, and it appears in lexical texts, like the list of geographical names. From context, it appears to be somewhere in central Mesopotamia, which would be kind of the right place for Jemdet Nasser. It appears in the late Uruk period and the early 2000s, which is the right time frame for Jemdet Nasser. The sign combination, Ub-Ab, might be translated as the Esh of Ub, in other words, the temple household of Ub. We'll talk about that in a bit. And if Ub is Jemdet Nasser, then the Ub-Ab would be the central institution receiving and distributing goods. In both cases, we have no way to know how to pronounce these sign combos. Even if we could be sure that they're speaking Sumerian in Unug at this point, which we're not sure about, in Jemdat Nasser, up in the north, they might be speaking Akkadian or maybe even some other language. So, moving to our old friend Unug. As I said, the transition from the Uruk to the Jemdat Nasser period saw a major reorganization of temple complexes in Unug. 
The entire Ayana complex was torn down. And like I said, we saw major population movements. To quote a 2019 paper by Roger Matthews and Amy Richardson, this was caused by, quote, a combination of peripheral disruption and internal crisis brought to a head by drier, colder conditions at the end of the mid-Holocene wet optimum, end quote. So during this period, different Sumerian cities are sending resources to Unug, which might be ritual offerings to Inanna or the Ayana. This mirrors the later Bala distribution system, which are offerings for the religious institutions of Nippur, the religious capital of Sumer during the 2000s. To quote a 2001 paper by Guillermo Algaze, if this was the case, quote, Unug functioned as a religious capital of Sumer throughout the fourth millennium, end quote. And just as we see later, Nippur is a religious capital, but not a political capital or the center of the political leadership, even when all of the alluvium is combined under a single royal dynasty. So this may be the case here. In other words, Unug may have been a religious capital and important for ideological reasons, but not the political hegemon dictating the course of events across the alluvium. We only have one city seal from Unug. We'll talk about city seals in a bit. This is on a door ceiling. So to the extent that Unug was involved in the city league economy, they were probably keeping commodities in storerooms, hence the door ceiling, under the authority of the city league. There was a city wall built around Unug in the late Jemdat Nasser, so around 2900 BC. It's made of mud brick, and it is 9.5 kilometers in circumference. This may be the first time that there was a single unified city of Unug instead of two separate communities of the Ayana and the Kulaba, where they may have grown together gradually and only been formally joined once they built the wall. Speaking of which, I mentioned the Ayana temple complex is reorganized around this time. The old monuments are torn down and several small new buildings are built, including some baths. So one particular trove of valuables is called the Samalfund. These were stored together during the Jemdat Nasser period at the Ayana, but they were likely heirlooms from the earlier Uruk period. So we see some animal amulets, similar to those found at Telbrak and Hamukar, both Uruk outposts. We also see vessels with dark stone bodies, which are inlaid with lapis and colored limestone. Also in the Samalfund, we find the Warka vase, which is currently the cover image for this podcast. It's about one meter tall, made of calcite. And it has several different registers. So on the bottom are grain and sheep, then people carrying offerings. On the top is a naked man presenting an offering to a woman. There's a bowl and piles of offerings, presumably for the temple at Inanna. Also, an important guy with the sign N above him. That cuneiform sign N is later used to write the Sumerian word for Lord, which is N. So the Aana is the temple district of the goddess Inanna. And she, since the beginning of written history, has been associated with the planet Venus. In other words, the morning and evening star. So the association between the goddess of sex and the planet Venus continued from Sumerian through Akkadian and Greek and Roman times. So during the Jemdat Nasser period, we see Inanna Hud, or shining Venus, or Venus rising, as the morning star, and Inanna Sig as setting Venus, or the evening star. One cylinder seal appears to be for a religious festival. It says, quote, festival, morning and evening Inanna, stars, end quote. It features a bowl, which may be the bowl of heaven from the Gilgamesh stories. During the Jemdat Nasser period, we have records of goods delivered to the triple Inanna, which may be the Inanna of Unug. The same goddess may have been venerated at Jemdat Nasser, the city, and Tel Ukair. So if so, this would be evidence of Unug's hegemony over the north. The texts also refer to a sleeping chamber, or an A-na. This appears in the Enmarkar myths, where Enmarkar literally has sex with Inanna. The Lady of Warka. This is the only surviving statue from this period, and it may be a statue of Inanna. It's a woman's face with a unibrow. So moving to the Kulaba, or the temple complex of the god An, the famous White Temple is built around 3000 BC. This is a massive tripartite building, 22 by 18 meters in area and 6 meters tall. It's named after the white gypsum plaster on the walls. This temple sits on a 13 meter tall terrace that had been built up over about a thousand years. It has a niched and buttressed exterior, which recalls both public buildings during the Pottery Neolithic and during the Ubayid. And like I said, it's built over smaller, earlier versions of the same terrace and building. So as time goes on, they keep building it up higher and higher on the same foundation. 
In the center of the main room of the temple is an offering table. In the corner of the room is a podium, probably for a statue of a god. Like I said, by later in the 2000s, this will be the temple to the heaven god An, father of the gods. The White Temple has a basement called the Steingebaude, which is an even larger structure, 25 by 30 meters. The walls here are made of limestone and mortared with bitumen. This appears to be an unusual labyrinth surrounding a central space. We don't know exactly what it was used for, but probably has some kind of religious use. Buried under the White Temple, we see obsidian vessels, similar to those in the tombs at Tepe Gaura. These vessels were probably imported as finished products. Also under the White Temple, we have skeletons of a leopard and a young lion, both buried in a mud brick box. So moving to Ur, around 3100 BCE, we have clay copies of shell beads, in other words, baked clay with a distinctive spiral grooving along the length, you know, intended to mimic the spiral of a shell. These are unique to the Jemdat Nasser period. In two ceilings at Ur, we see the sign Sham, which means to buy, pay, or sell. And in the same place as these ceilings, we see imported obsidian from Anatolia. So this is definite evidence of some kind of trade happening. In the graves at Ur during the Jemdat Nasser period, we see products of semi-precious stone, like lapis lazuli, chalcedony, carnelian, and chlorite. Also for the first time, we see graves outside city limits, which might indicate that certain people are excluded from burials within the city. Later in Ur's history, we will see the royal cemetery, where certain people are given lavish tombs within the city. Cylinder seals may indicate that Ur was a dependency of Unug. To quote a 2016 paper by Peter Sharva, Ur, quote, probably played the role of a port of trade opened chiefly on the Persian Gulf, where selling and buying represented a component of administrative goings-on registered in writing, end quote. Ur appears in the city seals. The signs used to write it are Uri and Ab. So Ab, as we've been talking about, is probably used to write the Sumerian word Esh, or household, referring specifically to a temple household. In the next episode, we'll talk about the possibility that this might be a loan word from a non-Sumerian language. The other sign, Uri, is the name of Ur in Sumerian, pronounced either Uri or Urim. But the sign Uri is also used to write the name of the moon god Nana, who is the patron god of Ur. So in this case, Uri Ab might refer to the household of Nana. In other words, the phrase Temple of Nana might be used to describe the entire city of Ur. And later on, we'll look at the possibility that Ur may have been part of a unified polity, possibly centered at Unug. And we have a couple other miscellaneous cities. These don't have enough information to have a whole section on, but they're worth mentioning because they do come up later. So I mentioned Kish earlier. It's 30 kilometers southwest of Jemdet Nasser, probably home to an Uruk outpost. In a 2021 talk given by Francisco del Bravo, he says that, quote, Kish was surely the main cultural entity governing central Mesopotamia after the Uruk collapse, end quote. He was kind enough to send me a link to the video when I asked, so shout out to Dr. del Bravo. So this governance may have taken the form of a centralized kingdom. We will see that certainly in the early 2000s, Kish is the center of a powerful kingdom in the north. In this conception, the Uruk expansion would bring Sumerian culture, and after it collapsed, Kish would take over the northern Alluvium and central Mesopotamia in general. The culture of this kingdom would be a mix of Sumerian and Semitic-speaking peoples, a predecessor of later Kish and Akkad, you know, Mari, and so on, all places that have a significant ethnic mix of both Sumerian and Semitic speakers. The later prisoner plaque from Kish which is one of our earliest historical texts, depicts a Jemdet Nasser-style monumental building in the background. So it's very likely that Jemdet Nasser during the Jemdet Nasser period and Kish during the early 2000s were part of the same culture. Shurupak was a large city in the central alluvium founded during the Jemdet Nasser. It reached 70 hectares at some point during the Jemdet Nasser or the early, early dynastic period. We have some of their seal impressions from this period. We'll talk about those in a future episode on Shurupak during the Fara period, or about the 2500s BC. And last, we have Tel Ukair, this is northeast of Kish, in the same general region as Jemdet Nasser. Here, they also venerated the triple Inanna, which might indicate some kind of relationship with Unug at some point. Here we have both archaic cuneiform texts and city seals. The name of Tel Ukair might have been written with the signs Ku Rad Ur, and its ancient name in Sumerian might have been Urum. So moving on to writing. 
the Jem.Naster period is also called the Uruk-3 period. So the Uruk-4 period was the late Uruk period. So because the levels go backwards at Unug, the period after Uruk-4 is Uruk-3, which coincides with the Jem.Naster. And Uruk-3 refers primarily to the next phase of proto-cuneiform writing. In other words, the phase of proto-cuneiform found at the third level down at the Ayana. So we found 243 proto-cuneiform tablets from a large building at Jem.Naster. These record the same things as the tablets from Unug, administration, labor, animals, grain, dairy, textiles, etc. 81 of those tablets have cylinder seal impressions, and 13 of those impressions are from city seals, again, which we'll get to soon. We also found 3,000 Uruk-3 period tablets from Unug, and a few from Tel Ukair and Eshnuna along the Diyala River. So some of the changes introduced during this phase of writing history. These sign designs are standardized. In other words, where different places had written the same sign differently, now they're written the same everywhere. The total number of signs decreases, so they get rid of what may have been redundant or obsolete signs. The layout and composition become more complex, and the shape of signs changes. It becomes more abstract or less pictographic, more linear or less curved. Now it's written with a shaped stylus, not just a pointed one. So instead of essentially using a stick to draw shapes, now they're using a wedge-shaped object to push the shape of a wedge into clay, which you can do yourself with the corner of a chopstick. Turns out the wedge shape is actually just pressing the corner of a box-shaped object into clay. So this is the beginning of a hundred-year-long writing tradition. It starts during the Jemina Nasser, again, 3000 BC, and lasts until the end of the third dynasty of Ur, around 2000 BCE, with occasional survivals until later periods. In other words, this is when the cuneiform system that is used to write the earliest true language is formalized, although it's not quite used for that yet. So in terms of numbers, they had a base 60 number system or a sexagesimal system. They used this at both Unug and Jemdat Nasser. This kind of system is perfect for subdivision of land and commodities. So 60 is divisible by 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, you know, 10, 12, 15, etc., 20, 30. We still use the Mesopotamian system for minutes and seconds. They used 12 two-hour periods instead of two sets of 12 hours. But other than that, we have inherited our timekeeping system from Mesopotamia. During the Jemdat Nasser, they also used a by six decimal system, or base 120. This was used for dry grain products and fresh fish and possibly for cheese. They also used a decimal system, so in other words, a base 10 system, mostly for barley. But the Sumerian language itself seems to be base 20. So in other words, like French, Sumerian counts in 20s, not 10s or 60s. They did have fractions. For example, one sign is used to represent the concept of half, especially half the capacity of a basket or a jar. That same sign for half is also used to indicate baby humans and animals. They had a different sign for one-tenth, and they also had ways of indicating one-sixteenth, one-thirty-second, and one-sixty-fourth. So to take a look at lexical texts, the biggest lexical archive during the Jemdanasa period is in Unug. It was found between two walls from a later period. These are 193 fragments from 190 different lexical lists, and this makes up 30% of the total of all proto-historic lexical lists from the Uruk period and the Jemdatnasi period. So some of the lexical lists found there, we have 52 of the Lu-2-A list, which is a hierarchical list of temple positions. We have 25 copies of the tribute text, as well as vessels and metals, cattle, and fish. The tribute list is overrepresented. Robert England, in a 1999 book, called this the earliest work of written literature on earth. So after a two-line introduction, the next 24 lines are a list of numbers and measures of products and animals, both wild and domestic. Then four lines of ideographic notations, then the earlier section repeats exactly. Then we have some more ideograms with unclear meanings. So this kind of repetition is common in Mesopotamian literature. It probably dates back to the period when these poems were recited orally in public so that you didn't miss the important parts. The tribute list may or may not be literature as such. You, As interpreted, it's essentially a list of hypothetical offerings to a temple. 
even if that situation never happened, I don't know if it's fiction so much as just a hypothetical learning exercise to just copy down. It would be difficult to prove that there was artistic or literary intent in creating this kind of hypothetical writing exercise for scribes and scribe school. So moving to the question of a city league, which I've been referencing, we see a new type of seal impression during the Jim Dutton period. Here we see the names of several different Mesopotamian cities on a single seal, written in a semi-pictographic script. And these appear at Unug, Jemdat Nasser, Ur, Susa, Shurpak, Tel Ukair, and even Konar Sandal in East Iran. The cities included on the seal include Unug, Ur, Kesh with an E, Larsa, Nippur, Zabulam, Eridu, and Adab, possibly Tel Ukair. The word or name Edinu is Sumerian for grasslands, in other words, the open areas between the rivers. Gebhardt Seltz in a 2020 paper says that this might be an ancient Sumerian name for the entire land of Sumer. Might also be the name of a city called Edinu. So we haven't actually found the seals that made these city seal impressions, just the impressions. And they range from the Jemdat Nasser period to the early 2000s. So in a group of 18 texts from Jemdat Nasser, 14 of them and one from Tel Ukair are impressions from the exact same city seal. To quote Gebhardt Seltz, one of them, quote, lists various quantities of figs, apples, or apricots, strings of figs, a fish product of some kind, and a vessel with a grape product, end quote. The subscript says, quote, Jemdat Nasser, the triple inana of Unug, End quote. Each tablet with a seal on it also has sign combinations, including Niru and Unug. We talked about Niru, but Unug is, of course, the city of Unug or Uruk. So we have a collection of tablets called the Berlin Tablets. These were bought in 1903 with no provenance, which is a euphemistic way of saying they were looted. More than half of them have the phrase Kurad Ur on them, where Niru appears on other texts. This name is also found on four tablets from Tel Ukair, which is why I said earlier that Kurad Ur might have been the ancient name of Tel Ukair. It's rare for impressions from the exact same seal to show up in different cities, even if we do have similar types of seals in different cities. So I mentioned we have only one city seal from Unug. In the top row of this, it has the names of Ur, Nippur, Larsa, Unug, and Kesh, as well as Edinu, which I talked about, and six unknown names. So Gebhardt Seltz says that these texts would have been written and sealed in Jemdat Nasser. The seal would acknowledge the receipt of the goods. And the triple inana of Unug might be the recipient in Jemdat Nasser. So, you know, this would assume that there is a shrine to the goddess Inanna, you know, the goddess of Unug, in Jemdat Nasser. Sel says that these seals, quote, should be considered late evidence for the Uruk trade network postulated for the earlier periods, end quote. So these proto-cuneiform signs go the right way on a seal, which means that when you impress them into clay, the impression is a mirror image. In other words, the writing goes backwards on the impression if it goes forwards on the seal. This may indicate a focus on the legibility of the seal rather than of the impression. In later Mesopotamia, we will see that the writing on the seal itself is backwards so that it can go forwards on the impression itself, where most people are going to be reading it. So many city names contain elements of divine names. The sign Uri indicates both the god Nana and the city of Ur. The sign U is used to write the god Utu, and it's part of the name of Ararma, also called Larsa. The same signs are used to write the name of the city of Nippur, or Nibru, and the name of the god Enlil, the patron god of Nippur. In England's 1998 book, he says the order of cities, quote, may reflect a mythological or cultic hierarchy, that is, beginning with a household of the moon god Nana, followed by that of the earth god Enlil, the sun god Utu, and so on, end quote. So there's a proto-cuneiform lexical text called the Archaic City List, with at least 88 cities named. This probably has some kind of religious significance. The first seven entries are Ur, Nippur, Larsa, Unug, Kesh with an E, Zabalam, and Eresh. Matthews and Richardson say, quote, Across these sources, from the northern and southern limits of Lower Mesopotamia, the city sequences are almost identical for the first five to six entries, end quote. The only exception is that Nippur and Larsa sometimes switch places. These are also the only two cities included in the same box from a ceiling at Unug. Not clear what that means. So this might speak to a unified political entity, 
Remember, the cylinder seal represents the approval of an individual acting on behalf of an institution, you know, with authority vested in them by the institution. So if we see several cities on the same seal, that might indicate that they're members of the same institution authorized to approve any particular transaction. This may be a league of cities, in other words, a single political unit unified by religious practice. This could be an outgrowth of the Uruk outpost networks. In other words, elites in different cities would ally with each other. Because of these alliances, temples would create myths about their various gods interacting, and that mythology would reify their political power and vice versa. So in the future, we'll see more evidence pointing to the existence of a city league. For example, in Ur in the 2700s BCE, in the north and central Alluvium in the 2500s BCE, we see evidence of what might be a kingdom of Kish, which we'll talk about, and or a city league, which has been called the Hexapolis of Shurupak, because we found all these records at the city of Shurupak in the central Alluvium. But for now, let's return to the story of Lugalbanda. So we are listening to Lugalbanda and the Anzu Bird. This is the second of two texts about Lugalbanda from the 21st century BCE, and it continues the story directly from the previous Lugalbanda story, which we just finished. Last time on Sumerian Epic Poetry. Lugabanda was on a military campaign to attack the faraway kingdom of Arata, but when he was on his way in the mountains, he fell sick, and his fellow soldiers basically prepared a grave for him in a cave in the mountains. Leaving their bro behind to die. Yep, but he prayed to a bunch of gods and got better, and now he is in the mountains wandering around. Lugalbanda lies idle in the mountain, in the faraway places. He has ventured into the Zabu Mountains. No mother is with him to offer advice. No father is with him to talk to him. No one is with him whom he knows, whom he values. No confidant is there to talk to him. In his heart, he speaks to himself. Already, I love the fact that, like, his mom's not there to help him and his dad's not there to shoot the shit with him. Yeah. Parents are equal, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, Lugalbanda says, I shall treat the bird as befits him. I shall treat Anzu as befits him. I shall greet his wife affectionately. I shall seat Anzu's wife and Anzu's child at a banquet. An will fetch Ninguena for me from her mountain home, the expert woman who redounds to her mother's credit. Ninkasi, the expert who redounds to her mother's credit. Her fermenting vat is of green lapis lazuli. Her beer cask is of refined silver and of gold. If she stands by the beer, there is joy. If she sits by the beer, there is gladness. As cupbearer, she mixes the beer, never wearying as she walks back and forth. Ninkasi, the keg at her side, on her hips. May she make my beer serving perfect. She's doing a lot of beer labor. Yep. So he might be talking about his wife, who is alternately called Ninsun or Ninsumun. One of the earliest works of literature we have from human history is about Lugalbanda's marriage to Ninsumun. And in that poem, she brews him beer. So this poem may be conflating Ninkasi, the more popular Sumerian beer goddess, with this other goddess associated with beer. Ah, okay, okay. That, that makes sense. And also in that very early text, he meets her in the east, where the king of Unug sent him to collect tribute from the east to bring back to Unug. Is that where that god is from? Right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so this is probably part of a larger body of literature that we only have pieces of. Also, I like the idea of just, like, using a bigger god's name in place of the one that was already in the myth. Uh, no, no. very fun to me. That would just be like if, like, you know, like, oh, the New Testament, and just, like, the latter half of the New Testament is like, Mega Jesus! You know, <laughs> an ultra god! <laughs> god in a mech suit. <laughs> Jesus is like, I'll form the body. The Holy Spirit's like, I'll form the legs. And then God's like, I'll form the head. Yeah. The editor of the Bible's like, you think we might be gilding the lilies of the field a little? <laughs> the Holy Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> so Lugalbanda continues. When the bird has drunk the beer and is happy. When Anzu has drunk the beer and is happy. He can help me find the place to which the troops of Unug are going. Anzu can put me on the track of my brothers. Now the splendid eagle tree of Enki. 
on the summit of Inanna's mountain of multicolored carnelian, stood fast on the earth like a tower, all shaggy like an aru. With its shade, it covered the highest eminences of the mountains like a cloak, was spread out over them like a tunic. Its roots rested like Songkul snakes in Utu's river of the seven mouths. Nearby, in the mountains, where no cypresses grow, where no snake slithers, where no scorpion stings, in the midst of the mountains, the buru-as bird had put its nest and laid therein its egg. Nearby, the anzu bird had set his nest and settled therein his young. It was made with wood from the juniper and the box tree. The bird had made the bright twigs into a bower, when at daybreak, the bird stretches himself. When at sunrise, Anzu cries out. At his cry, the ground quakes in the Lulubi Mountains. He has a shark's teeth and an eagle's claws. In terror of him, wild bulls run away into the foothills. Stags run away into their mountains. Lugulbanda is wise, and he achieves mighty exploits. In preparation of the sweet celestial cakes, he added carefulness to carefulness. He kneaded the dough with honey and added more honey to it. He set them before the young nestling, before the Anzu chick, gave the baby fatty meat to eat. He fed it sheep's fat. He popped the cakes into its beak. He settled the Anzu chick in its nest, painted its eyes with coal dabbed white cedar scent into its head, put up a twisted roll of salt meat. He withdrew from the Anzu's nest, awaited him in the mountains where no cypresses grow. At that time, the bird was herding together wild bulls of the mountains. Anzu was herding together wild bulls of the mountain. He held a live bull in his talons. He carried a dead bull across his shoulders. He poured forth his bile like ten gur of water. The bird halted once, Anzu halted once. When the bird called back to its nest, when Anzu called back to the nest, his fledgling did not answer him from the nest. Whenever the bird had called back to the nest before, his fledgling had answered from the nest. But now, when the bird called back to the nest, his fledgling did not... <laughs> Question from the back, yeah. When the bird calls back to his nest, usually does the chick answer him from the nest? I'd like to clarify, uh, where are they calling to and from? <laughs> but now, when the bird called back to the nest, his fledgling did not answer him from the nest. The bird uttered a cry of grief that reached up to the heaven. His wife cried out, woe. Her cry reached the abzu. The bird with this cry of woe and his wife with this cry of grief made the Anuna, gods of the mountain, actually crawl into crevices like ants. For the bird says to his wife, Anzu says to his wife, Foreboding ways upon my nest, as over the great cattle pen of Nana, terror lies upon it. As when wild lions start butting each other, who has taken my child from its nest? Who has taken the Anzu from its nest? But it seemed to the bird when he approached the nest, it seemed to Anzu when he approached the nest, that it had been made like a god's dwelling place. It was brilliantly festooned. His chick was settled in its nest. Its eyes were painted with coal. Sprigs of white cedar were fixed upon its head. A twisted piece of salt meat was hung up high. The bird is exultant. Anzu is exultant. 
I am the prince who decides the destiny of rolling rivers. I keep on the straight and narrow path the righteous who follow in Leal's counsel. My father in Leal brought me here. He let me bar the entrance to the mountains as if with a great door. If I fix a fate, who shall alter it? If I but say the word, who shall change it? Whoever has done this to my nest, if you are a god, I will speak with you. Indeed, I will befriend you. If you are a man, I will fix your fate. I shall not let you have any opponents in the mountains. You shall be hero fortified by Anzu. Lugalbanda, partly from fright, partly from delight, partly from fright, partly from deep delight, flatters the bird, flatters Anzu. Bird with sparkling eyes, born in this district. Anzu with sparkling eyes, born in this district, you frolic as you bathe in a pool. Your grandfather, the prince of all patrimonies, placed heaven in your hand, set earth at your feet. Your wingspan extended is like a bird net stretched out across the sky. On the ground, your talons are like a trap laid for the wild bulls and wild cows of the mountains. Your spine is as straight as a scribe's. Your breast, as you fly, is like Nirach parting the waters. As for your back, you are a verdant palm garden, breathtaking to look upon. Yesterday, I escaped safely to you. Since then, I have entrusted myself to your protection. Your wife shall be my mother. You shall be my father. I shall treat your little ones as my brothers. Since yesterday, I have been waiting for you in the mountains where no cypresses grow. Let your wife stand beside you to greet me. I offer my greeting and leave you to decide my destiny. Okay, so that's fun. He well, got adopted by a bird god. Yeah, you go to visit a guy, but he's not home. His kid's home. It's like, okay, let me put some makeup on this kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna get me a little crib. I'm gonna be a little like, what, what are those things that you hang above babies, <laughs> but with bun. meat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got some meat dangling above this child, and then you get adopted by a bird god. Yep. Also, I love the phrase "prince of all patrimonies." Yes. Something about that is that's a funny phrase. Right. Also, visually describing the back of a bird as a verdant palm garden mm. is, uh, I think, really cool. Green back. Having fun. Nah, I don't know. So that is that for this episode. Join us next time for the end of the Lugalbanda saga. Okay, you know when birds like spit up food into uh, a baby chick's mouth? I hope that happens for <laughs> Lugalbanda. Lugalbanda. <laughs>